going back in school. Um, please do keep your Bibles open on your laps. Um, this is a very, very quick-fire, quick-moving passage, uh, and we're going to try and match pace with it for at least part of the sermon. But before we do that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. Amen. Amen. Giovanni was born rich. His father was a successful, a very successful Italian businessman, and his mother was a French noblewoman. The perfect cocktail for a comfortable, easy, and probably happy life. On top of that, he was clever, handsome, well-dressed, charming, funny. History doesn't record whether he was good at sports, but but you know he was. Um, We all went to school with, with a Giovanni, didn't we? And in fact, it's a phenomenon that I believe anthropologists call the genetic straight flush. Um... Giovanni spent his childhood and his teens enjoying every bit of his wealth in every way he could think of. But then in his 20s, he suddenly left it all behind. He he formally renounced his uh, family title and wealth and status to, to the fury of his father and lived the rest of his life in deliberate poverty. To almost everyone... That decision made no sense. It was inexplicable, except it wasn't inexplicable. Giovanni, or St. Francis of Assisi, as you uh, may have heard of him, knew something, had something, that most of the rest of the world didn't have. And and that thing was what drove the rest of his life, worshipping the Lord, serving the poor, and teaching others to do the same. And that thing was faith, which, as I'm sure you've picked up by now, is the subject of this entire chapter of Hebrews. However, I personally find, and I wonder if you agree with this, faith can actually be quite a tricky word. It can be quite abstract. Sometimes we're not really sure what to actually pin that concept to. We use it all the time in church life, but what does it actually mean? So, For the purposes of this sermon, I'm going to replace the word faith with two concepts that are explained in verse 1. I'll come back around to that. The word confidence and the word assurance. And and those two things are what, what we're going to look at influence the lives of the people in our passage. So if you turn to verse 24 with me, we'll see Moses born, or sorry, not born, but early life adopted into a very similar situation to Giovanni and then make almost exactly the same decision. Moses was effectively a prince, wealthy, safe, protected, but but then he threw it all away. He left the palace and then years later he came back to the palace and took on the new pharaoh who could have easily had him killed with the snap of his fingers. The rest of Moses' life contained huge seasons of discomfort, danger, frustration, and sometimes desperately deep sadness. Again, Moses' decision to walk away from his his other life seems explicable. 
But Moses and St. Francis were both deeply confident that the kingdom of God was coming. And they were both assured that God was going to win the final victory. And those two things was what drove their choices. That was the root that they, that they grew. And all of their life decisions, the big ones and the small ones too, came from. So I mentioned earlier the famous verse at the beginning of this chapter of Hebrews. Verse 1, you may wish to look at it, which Sarah Jane unpacked for us a few weeks ago. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And that is what we are seeing in the lives of Moses and St. Francis. When they first made those choices, neither of them could see God's kingdom coming in full in front of their eyes. Sure, there were some clues, but there wasn't a full body of evidence to support their choices to walk away from their wealth and comfort. What they had to go on was God's promise. St. Francis had more or less the same promises that that we do today, uh, the whole body of Scripture. Moses had a, a lot less to go on. Moses had a covenant that God made with Abraham passed down by word of mouth through the generations. And I'd like to read you a part of it. This is from Genesis 15. The Lord said, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward you will come out with great possessions. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, here being Canaan, the the promised land. That promise was around 600 years old by the time Moses was making his life choices. For 400 of those years, the people had been in slavery. Beatings, forced labor, malnourishment, all things designed to get the hope out of you, to to, to destroy any faith you might have started with. But the words of the promise lingered on. The Israelites could not see God's victory coming. Moses could not see how redemption would come for the people. But he chose to believe that the words of that covenant were true nonetheless. He rooted himself in the assumption that God would make good on his promise. And then he made his life choices. And the same applies to the other heroes of faith in our passage today. A lot of these choices do not make sense at face value. So let's have a look. So verses 20 and 21. Isaac and Jacob placed the hands on their heads of their sons or or grandsons in Jacob's case and prayed that the blessing of the Lord that they had been carrying would pass on through the generations. Now, we may well be familiar with that. We've read it many times. But that doesn't make any sense unless the Lord's blessing is real and the Lord's kingdom is coming. Joseph's instructions on on where to bury his bones make no sense at all if God doesn't lead the Israelites into the promised land hundreds of years later. Rahab 
who was a citizen of the city of Jericho, betrayed her own people, allowed enemy spies into her home, sheltered them, and helped them escape. Those are really bad life choices. Unless you know that God's army is going to win. And I'm not sure I even need to say this out loud, but walking around a city playing trumpets, trumpets is a woefully inadequate siege tactic. <laughs> unless, unless the Lord of hosts has a plan. Because if you knew for sure that God was going to win, then following his advice and his plan is a pretty smart idea. If, if, if you knew for sure that God's kingdom was coming and that all other principalities and powers will bend the knee and submit to him, then investing in that kingdom is, is the best possible use of your time and resources. Um, unfortunately, we don't get to know for sure. That's not the way it works. But we can choose to believe what these heroes of the faith believed. We can choose to believe that God will win. We can choose to believe that his kingdom is coming. And so when we have a choice to make, an everyday choice in our lives, we can position ourselves there. So before we make the choice, we can start with a working assumption. God's kingdom is coming. And God will be victorious. Stand on the rock of that truth. Draw confidence from it. Build assurance in it. And, and only then turn to whatever choice we have to make. And what, what does the outcome of your choice look like now if you're positioned on top of that faith? I have to confess to a, a, a personal difficulty I have with Hebrews 11 here. Um, this is the point in the sermon at which everybody has hopefully started to wonder about how this might apply to our lives. And whenever I read Hebrews 11, the first thing that happens is that I'm deeply inspired by these, these powerhouses of faith, these giants up there, which I think is what the writer of Hebrews was aiming for. But then when I start to think about my life, my own journey of faith, I start to find these almighty heroes a bit intimidating. I look at my ordinary, normal-sized life, I look back at these giants, I look back down at me, and I wonder how I can possibly measure up. Or, or in fact, how I can compare my situation with theirs. I'm, I'm no Moses, I'm certainly not Jacob, I have never been asked to shelter enemy spies in my home. I can't even play the trumpet, so I'd be useless at Jericho. But almost all of the time, I don't have these colossal, world-altering decisions to make. I need to make choices like, how do I approach disciplining my kids? Which energy provider should I, should I subscribe to? Who to talk to in the coffee break? So how can I look at the lives of these massive faith giants and work out what I need to do? Oh, I'd like to tell you a story. So, excuse me. <laughs> a couple of years ago, just before I began my training, my wife and I thought it would be a really good season to also invest some time and energy into our marriage. So uh, we went to our vicar 
and we said, um, are there any couples that can do some, some mentoring with us, some praying with us, and just help guide us into this season of, um, of, uh, of working for the church? The vicar sort of smiled a wry smile and thought, I've got just the couple. So he called them over, introduced us to them. Um, I'm going to call them Colin and Dawn. Now, Colin and Dawn were in their 80s. Um, they had been members of the church for pretty much their entire lives, married for, I think, around 50 years. Uh, and, and they invited us to, to come and do just what we were hoping for. So about every month, Kat and I would arrange for a babysitter, go to Colin and Dawn's house, and we would chat. We would drink tea. We would eat Dawn's lovely biscuits. And um, we would pray together. Nothing world-shattering, nothing deeply theological, nothing groundbreaking. They just loved us and they prayed for us. And we felt safe and encouraged. That went on for about a year. And then one afternoon, out of the blue, we got a phone call letting us know that Colin had died suddenly in the night. We, along with the entire church community, were absolutely devastated. Just, just at a loss. It was, it was such a surprise. The day of the funeral came and the church was packed to the rafters. It's a big church, about the same size as, as this one here. Uh, and this particular church is right in the city centre on the busy tourist high street. And one other thing that you need to know is that there's a busker's pitch right outside the church. And when the church is quiet, you can, you can hear the music. And uh, it's a slightly unusual city, so you get all sorts there. You get your guitarists and your pianists, but you also might get opera singers or full bands or people doing all sorts of interesting artsy things. So there we are, sat in the funeral, already crying before things have even started, just in our grief and our sadness. And as the vicar came up the steps to prepare, uh, to, to begin the service, uh, we heard outside a five-piece Mexican mariachi trumpet band <laughs> begin their set. And they didn't stop for two hours. Everyone, everyone in the church just sort of silently went, no, at this moment. Um, but what could you do? They'd booked their slot. They were there by rights. It wasn't fair to go and ask them to, to not do that. So, so in, a, in a moment of sort of collective unconsciousness that I think Carl Jung would be proud of, somehow, telepathically, we all said to each other, okay, just pretend it's not happening. Just carry on. We're just going to be in the moment. I don't know if you've ever tried to pray funeral prayers with extremely jolly, loud Mexican trumpet music going on, but it is very, very distracting. And, and, and it was really, really hard to try and be in the moment and give Colin the honor that we all wanted to give him at his funeral and, and, and um, entrust him to the Lord. And it was, it was tough. It was horrid. But then we'd done some prayers. We had sung some songs. Then the eulogies began. And person after person after person came up onto the stage and shared how Colin had blessed them, how he prayed for them, how he had loved them, how he had sacrificed his own comfort to help them out with something like that. And, and, and this weird thing happened as, as all of these people talked about Colin's life. Suddenly, these trumpets were no longer a distraction. They were a reminder because all of a sudden, these trumpets to us was the, the heavenly fanfare welcoming this man of faith into the presence of his loving father. 
And we were encouraged by the sound of these trumpets because the one thing that you could not miss throughout these eulogies of things that Colin had done for his 80-something years was that Colin was a person of faith. Now, Colin was no Moses. He was never faced with the choice of abandoning his princely position because he'd never had one. He never led an army. He never built a temple. He was a teacher. But to those of us who knew him or people who had ever met him, there is no doubt in our minds he was a great person of faith. And here's where I get to my point, because the way he got there was actually exactly the same as the giants of faith in Hebrews 11. Because every morning, Colin spent time in prayer, spent time reading scripture, reminding himself, building his confidence that God's kingdom was coming. And his assurance that God was going to win the final victory. And then Colin went out and he lived his life. But every person that he met and thing that he decided to do was an investment in that coming kingdom. And every time he opened his mouth, it was a declaration of the coming victory of God. So the challenge to all of us this morning, and this is myself included, is this. Where are we rooting ourselves before we make our daily choices? Are we we operating out of default positions? Hurry. Stress, anger, worry, disappointment? Or are we taking time every day to spend time in the presence of God, read his word, speak to him, following the example of the ancient heroes, the medieval heroes, the modern day heroes, and daily refresh our confidence that God's kingdom is coming and our assurance that God is is going to win. I was going to invite you uh, to take a moment to reflect. We're going to be um, taking communion, which Simon will lead us through in a moment. And just as we do that, as you come and take the bread and the wine and pray the prayers, I just want to invite you to reflect on where are my roots every morning before I go out and live my life. Amen. Amen.